Mark chapter 12, verses 36. Sorry, Mark chapter 12, 35 to 37. Sorry, I got confused. 35 to 37. And the word of God reads, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are going to look at three short verses in today's passage. But even though the passage is shorter than usual, uh, by no means is the content any less significant. Uh, and so, Lord, as Jesus lays down this challenging question uh, to the religious leaders about the identity of Jesus, uh, about his lordship, uh, help us to discern what this meant uh, for God's people at the time and what it means for us today. And Lord, help us not just to understand what it means, uh, but to be transformed by the significance of what this means. Uh, and so, Lord, as always, we pray for clarity and wisdom as we unpackage uh, these short verses. Uh, and, Lord, we pray that you would be with us. And may you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I started working from a, a very young age. Um, I worked for about 12 years uh, after I turned 18, for one of the big banks, uh, I won't, I don't know if I'm allowed to share which bank, but I think that in itself gives it away. Which bank? Yeah, anyway. For those of you that are old, you know the, the, the ads that they used to play, which bank? And then they'd say the name of the bank. Um, but I used to work for this bank 12 years, and I started off in the mailroom licking envelopes. That was my entry-level role. Um, I, I was in a situation where I had to support my mother financially and we were really tight on money and I had to get a job and coincidentally I got a job in the mailroom licking envelopes they gave you a roller but that never really helped. worked they're like oh you tried this and you roll it and the envelope would just open so licking it was um and then I moved around I, over the course of the next few years after working in the mailroom I made my way into an admin role a data entry role a contact center role um an insurance underwriting role, a claims role. I moved around a lot of different departments. Now, one thing about working in a corporate environment, a lot of you guys work for finance companies, you know in a corporate environment, there is a dress code. Uh, and for the bank that I worked for, uh, the dress code was that you had to, at the very least, wear dress shoes, suit pants, a business shirt, and that was it. Didn't have to wear a tie. Didn't have to wear a suit jacket, but that was the very minimum. Suit pants, dress shoes, and a business shirt. Um, and then they introduced on Fridays, casual Fridays. Um, and we were quite strict with casual Fridays. You couldn't wear a t-shirt. Uh, you couldn't wear ripped pants. You had to wear, um, you couldn't even wear sneakers. You had to wear like in between casual and dress shoes, like kind of like, I don't know what they're called, like walkers? I don't know. Um, and then, you know, a nice pair of jeans or, you know, chinos or just anything that wasn't torn. 
and you had to wear a collared polo shirt or a button shirt. Uh, you weren't allowed to wear a t-shirt, singlet, or anything like that. It was like semi-casual. But then for me, uh, after a while, I began working in ministry. And so on Fridays, the church that I served at, uh, they wanted me to create like a, a weekly youth night, kind of like with what um, Jeter has, or HMX for Jeter has on Fridays. I think they call it DG. They have a Friday gathering. I had to do that uh, for my church. And because I served in a very conservative Presbyterian church, even on Friday nights, I had to dress up suit, tie. Uh, they were more strict than my workplace. Suit, tie, no matter what. And so on Fridays, everyone would be in casual, except for me. Every day of the week, I would rock up in pants, shirt, no tie, but every Friday, I'd be dressed to the nines, like a tie, full, full-on suit, and at that time, um, I never really had a full suit, but when I started ministry, my mom was like, because I always used to give my paycheck to my mom, my mom gave me some cash, she said, look, Jay, you're starting ministry, you need to get yourself a suit, you can't walk around, I don't know if people still wear microfiber pants today, but back then, microfiber was the thing, it's like, you can't keep dressing, you need to get yourself, invest in a nice suit, and so I bought this nice it was an Italian suit, uh, got it on discount. And I used to go to work every Friday wearing this Italian suit. And every Friday, because I'd worked in a lot of different departments, I'd walk to my old department where most of my friends worked and we'd go out to lunch. I'd usually get there a bit early, have a bit of a chit chat with them. And then I'd walk, get up and leave together with them. But I noticed every Friday, after I started ministry, I would walk over to this department to see my friends and have a bit of a chit-chat before lunch. And I noticed these three new individuals, new employees in this department. And every time I'd walk in, they were like meerkats. They'd be sitting there, and the moment they'd see me, their head would just pop up. And they'd just stare at me, smiling, as I'd walk past. So that's a bit creepy. <laughs> What's with these guys? And then after a few weeks, one of the young guys, a young gentleman, every time he'd see me, he'd come up to me and he'd make a beeline straight to me with his hand. From the other side of the floor, he'd walk up with his hand sticking out to shake my hand. He introduced himself the first time and then he'd just shake my hand like firm handshake. And he'd introduce himself. He's like, I sit over there. I started a few weeks ago. You know, this is my first job. This is what I do. I was like, oh, okay, well, nice to meet you. And then after a few weeks, he kept doing it. But this time, he would give me business ideas, ways he thinks we can change the processes to streamline the business and improve productivity. Okay, well, that's great. I don't know why you're telling me. Go tell your manager. Um, and... Every week after that, I noticed as he'd make his way to me to shake my hand and give me these new business ideas, uh, my friends would be snickering. And over lunch, I finally said, look, what's, what's going on? Well, why are these guys coming up to me? They said, because you're always coming to work in a suit on casual Fridays. They think you're a senior executive, and we just made an ongoing joke that you're some big week from upstairs that's come down. Um, so they thought I was like some kind of child product, because I was like, 21 at the time. They thought I was like some kind of prodigy that somehow made his way to senior exec level. Um, and then after 
the news broke to them that I was just I wasn't really any far above they were. Um, they they stopped talking to me after that. Um, they were disappointed, but during that short period, I gotta say it felt pretty good being treated like that. One of them they even bought me a coffee as I walked to that floor. Um, felt pretty good. Their understanding, even though it was a skewed understanding of who they thought I was really shaped the way they treated me. And I've got to say, it, was, it, was, it felt so good. Like, oh, this is, this is what it feels like to be on the executive team. And I share this with you because in today's passage, we see Jesus address his identity and uncover a bit more of a snapshot of who he actually is, what it meant that he was the Messiah. And we're going to look at, you know, this snapshot that Jesus reveals, how it's actually meant to shape the way we re- relate to and interact with Jesus. Now, if you recall, recall in the last few weeks, Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he's had like multiple confrontations. Uh, the Jewish leaders began scheming and plotting about how they could bring the downfall of Jesus. Um, when he first entered into Jerusalem, we saw that he flipped tables, drove out the money changers, um, and the chief priest came to him and demanded what authority are you doing these things? Like, who gives you the right? Who do you think you are that you're distracting, hindering the businesses that we have set up in the temple? And then the week after, the Pharisees and the Herodians challenged Jesus with a question about taxes. Uh, the Sadducees and challenged Jesus with a question about the resurrection. And then last week, we saw a scribe come to Jesus asking a question. What is the greatest commandment in Scripture? Now, whilst it's debatable that the scribe, compared to the others, didn't have any ill intentions, all the prior confrontations were designed to attack Jesus, to discredit Jesus, particularly in his claim as the Messiah. Because remember, what kind of a Messiah were the Jews expecting up until that point? Well, one thing they knew was that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. It would be a descendant of King David, as the Old Testament promised. But they had a distorted understanding of what the Messiah would look like, because they were expecting someone that would bring salvation to Israel from Rome. They were correct in expecting salvation, but they missed the idea that it was salvation from sin, And they were expecting a physical liberation from Rome. They weren't expecting the suffering Savior, as Isaiah 53 tells us. But they were expecting a Savior that would come to conquer. A warrior, military king. And what's more, they were expecting that the Messiah would be just a man and nothing more. Like a general, a man, a descendant of Adam, and then that's it. And so when Jesus appeared on the scene, on the scene um, it didn't just bother them that he claimed to be the Messiah. Uh, but in their eyes, Jesus was trying to add extra dimensions onto what the Messiah was meant to look like. Because remember, they were expecting Alexander the Great, Caesar, and Napoleon. Um, but we see throughout the Gospels that Jesus, as a Messiah, never raised up an army never engaged in any form of military campaign, never assumed a military title for himself. Instead, what he did was he preached the gospel. 
He preached the message of grace. He performed miracles, cast out demons, forgave sin, which is what God does. And he claimed to be God. Ego I me, he says in Greek, I am who I am, which is the title that uh, God gives to himself in the Exodus. None of these, these things were what the Jews expected the Messiah to do. Uh, Jesus wasn't the Messiah that they expected the Messiah to be. And so having challenged Jesus multiple times in the last few weeks, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, uh, Jesus now turns the table on them. And he challenges them. And he does it by throwing a question about what the Messiah is meant to look like. Because remember, their mindset was the Messiah was a military general and nothing more. A man and nothing more. The idea of the Messiah being anything more than that, for the Messiah to have a supernatural element, let alone being God himself, for them, that, that mode of thought was just foolishness. But Jesus asks a question using a passage from the Old Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1. These are experts in the law, remember. Experts in the word of God. So he throws them a question about the word of God. And Psalm 110 is written by none other than King David. And it's a prophetic psalm about the Messiah, written about the Messiah that's eventually going to descend from his lineage. And David says, or Jesus says rather, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Like I said, this is a messianic psalm. And whilst in Mark's gospel, uh, it's written in what's called Koine Greek. The original passage in Psalm 110 that's being quoted was written in Hebrew. And it's important that we understand it's written in Hebrew so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to get at. Because everyone knew, all Jews, even if they didn't understand this passage fully, they knew it was talking about the Messiah. And so the question... Jesus is posing, if we understand that it's written in Hebrew, is that how can David write about his son or his descendant and yet refer to him as Lord? Because if you look at Psalm 110 verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord said to my Lord. That word Lord is used twice. But if you read in your English Bibles, you'll find that the first instance of the word Lord, it's in capitals. And when you see the word Lord capitalized in scripture like that, it's because in the Hebrew, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is a reference to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Remember last week, I, I quoted the Shema. Shema Israel, Yahweh Lehenu, Yahweh Had. Yahweh is the covenant name of God that he gives to Moses in the Exodus. When, he, when, he, when Moses asks, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? Tell him, I am has sent you. I am who I am. Yahweh has sent you. And so verse 1 
of that psalm speaks of God, Yahweh, saying to someone else who is also Lord. And the word used in the second instant, if the first instance is Yahweh, the second use of the word Lord is that word Adonai, which we sung in the first song of today's worship session. And Adonai means Supreme Lord. So Yahweh said to Adonai. So we know that Yahweh is the covenant name of God, the God of Moses. Whoever this Adonai is, this second use of Lord, David is saying that Yahweh is speaking to Adonai. Now why is that significant? Well, if you look at Israel's history, particularly with the monarchy, during the life of King David, one thing you'll notice is that there never was a mediator between David and Yahweh. There was no in-between person. The whole point that they wanted to establish a king was so that the king would be the in-between person between Israel and God. What that means is that David never had an authority figure outside of God when it came to him reporting to or communicating with Yahweh. And the title, Adonai, that's talking about the Messiah. Like I said, it means Supreme Lord. And if you look at the Old Testament scriptures, that title, Adonai, is a title given to who? Yahweh. And so whoever this Adonai is, Psalm 110 says that he has the title of God, and not only that, that he's going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. Now, sitting at the right hand, when we use the term, you're going to be my right hand man, we generally have this idea that there's a hierarchy, you're a little bit lower than me, I'm just going to make you my second in charge. Anyone that's worked in a corporate environment knows that a 2IC, a second in charge, isn't the same as the manager, but it's different when it comes to Old Testament scripture. Because to sit at the right hand of Yahweh means that all power, honor, authority, and glory of the king has been transferred over to this right hand. And Jews know for a fact, they knew back then, and they know for a fact now, God does not share his glory with anyone. This is something that even the Muslims get right. God does not share his honor, his glory, his power with anyone. But whoever this Adonai is, God has conferred an equal status to this Messiah. And so Jesus throws this question to the Jewish leaders. If you think that this Messiah is a physical descendant of David, just a human descendant of David, that's just like a military general and nothing more, that there's no supernatural element, no divine element to the Messiah. If that's the case, and you believe that, and you're going to stick to that, then how do you make sense of Psalm 110? This prophetic psalm from David. If the Messiah is merely a, a biological, physical descendant of David and nothing more, then how is it that this Messiah, who is a son of David... Not his father, not his ancestor, but a son, a descendant of David. How is it that David refers to him as Adonai? 
Like if I asked my father to call me Lord, that would have been a very early funeral for me when I was growing up. And I think, I think Koreans and sort of Asian cultures, they share uh, a lot of commonality uh, with the culture in Jesus' time as well because it's, it's from a similar region in the world, in the East. How is it that David refers to his biological descendant as Adonai, Supreme Lord? How is it that a physical biological descendant sits at the right hand of God and shares in his honor, his glory, and his status? And so what Jesus is trying to insinuate to the Jewish leaders is this. Could it be that you've been too one-dimensional in your understanding of what the Messiah is meant to look like? Could it be that God's plans for the Messiah are bigger than just liberating Israel from Rome? What Jesus is doing isn't just to embarrass them, because remember these guys are experts in the law, and the one challenge that Jesus throws at them, they can't answer. He's not, he's not, he's not necessarily trying to embarrass them and humiliate them in front of the people. But what he's doing is he's inviting them. Inviting them to contemplate the reality that just maybe the Messiah, the identity of the Messiah surpasses human comprehension. That the truth about the Messiah transcends the limitations of earthly lineage. That the Messiah might possibly come from a realm beyond our earthly understanding. He's not necessarily trying to humiliate them, but he's trying to open their mind to the possibility. Is there a chance you've got this wrong? Now, my Muslim friends, uh, I've got a lot of Muslim friends at work. Uh, they love debating. They're very spirited when it comes to talking theology. Uh, and they love debating the uh, identity of Jesus. That's the one thing. Um, sometimes they get very angry, but they love talking about it for some reason. It's like every time we have a religious conversation, it always comes back to the identity of Jesus. Because for them, any sort of Quran-believing Muslim, for them, the idea, the very notion that God would become a man, and not just become a man, but die on a cross, uh, makes no sense. How can God die? The Trinity makes no sense. How can God be triune? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How can three be one? Logically, that doesn't make any sense. And for them, they say to me, Jay, if I can't understand God's identity with my mind, if it doesn't make sense, then it can't be true, can it? And the conversations go back and forth, uh, and it never ends. Uh, I, I still work at that same place, the big bank that I worked for. It's just that we got sold to another insurer. But I still work with the same people, the same Muslim group that I worked with 12 years ago. I still work with them. And the conversation, 12 years, we've never reached a consensus. Um, and every time I ask them this question, when it, like, we, we debate for like over lunch, an hour over lunch about the identity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. 
And they say it doesn't make sense. I can't comprehend, I can't understand this, and if I can't understand it, it mustn't be true. But I asked them this question. If creation can fully understand and comprehend the identity of God, then is that being really God? Because if God is from another realm, if God is infinite in nature as scripture reveals himself to be, then what wouldn't make sense is for finite creation to be able to understand an infinite creator fully. That for me doesn't make sense. But that's how today's passage ends. Jesus throws them this question to make them rethink the identity of what the Messiah is meant to look like. And the passage concludes by saying that the great throng or crowd heard him gladly. They were impressed by this question. Not just because the scribes and the religious leaders couldn't answer, but because it gave them something to think about. For them it's like, what about Psalm 110? What should this mean? What, how should this shape our understanding of the Messiah? They were excited about this because it added another dimension to what they'd been hoping for. Because remember, they'd been waiting hundreds of years for a savior to appear on the scene. And suddenly it's like, well, maybe what's coming is bigger than anything we'd ever dreamed of. And that's how today's passage ends. And I've got one, just one application. It does look like the sermon's going to be shorter than usual. Uh, praise God. <laughs> but that observation I want to share, or application, is that the true identity of Jesus is revealed through Scripture. Um, the true identity of Jesus is revealed through Scripture. The last few weeks, I've harped on about the importance of Scripture, the importance of the Bible in the Christian life. Last week, one of my application points was understanding God's word is key to understanding his power. A fortnight ago, I mentioned that scripture is our supreme authority because Jesus is our supreme authority. But my hope for all of you at Full Life is that we come to understand or realize that if we're to truly comprehend, understand, and accept who Jesus truly is, then it's imperative that Scripture be our primary source in shaping our definition of Jesus, our descriptor, our understanding of Jesus. Why? Not just because it's important to see how God describes himself, but because this was the pattern set out by God's people from early Israel. This is the, the, the rule of thumb that applied to God's people even Jesus himself. Because when Jesus explains his identity throughout the Gospels, and even in today's passage, what does he do? He uses scripture. He quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 110. Jesus, throughout his three-year ministry, constantly referred to the Old Testament. He constantly refers to the law of Moses and the prophets when revealing his identity to people. Why? Why was it so important that he quoted the Old Testament? 
He could have said, you know what? I am the, John chapter 1 verse 4, I am the word. He could have just said whatever he wanted and said, this is, this is authoritative. But instead, he quotes the Old Testament. Why? Because as he says in his Sermon on the Mount, he is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This isn't a new thing. Jesus isn't a new king that no one was expecting. He is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament promised. Today's quotation from Psalm 110 in particular is quite important. Jesus quotes Psalm 110 and it must be a passage of significance because the Apostle Peter, Psalm 110 is quoted multiple times in the, in the New Testament. Peter, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, quotes Psalm 110. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter quotes it. The unknown author of Hebrews must have found it important as well because he quotes in 1.13 when explaining how Jesus is higher than the angels, even the angels. Jesus authoritatively is high. He says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. Jesus, when explaining his identity to people, referred to scripture. The apostles, when preaching evangelistic sermons, pointed to Old Testament scripture. And there's a reason for this. Why? Because they believed Exactly what Paul wrote in Romans 1.16 when it came to Old Testament scripture. That the gospel or the word is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. To the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. It's through scripture that Christ reveals himself. It's through scripture that we gain an accurate understanding of who the Messiah is. It's through scripture that we gain a, a clear understanding of how this Messiah commands us to worship him. It's through scripture that we understand how God's people are called to live for him. And the danger of departing from scripture or thinking that we can add something on top of Scripture, is that it skews our understanding of the Messiah. It distorts it. And the danger in distorting the identity of our object of worship is that if you have something that is different to the God of the Bible, then we're not worshipping the God of the Bible anymore. We're left with nothing more than a God of our imagination, and Scripture defines that as what? An idol. Notice throughout the New Testament, Jesus never gave a new revelation of himself. He never said, look, I'm going to show you who I am in a way that no one, you know, don't, like I'm going, to, I'm going to give you something new. That you weren't expecting. Jesus instead unpackages the, the divine revelation 
from the Old Testament to explain from the Old Testament, from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He explains to them that this is all about me. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus explains how the scriptures are all about him. He doesn't say, hey guys, I've received a new word from heaven. A new thing that God's never said anything like to his people about in the past, but I'm just going to share something new with you. He doesn't say that. He says, this is what the law and the prophets say about me. He explains how the law and the prophets all point to him. And that's important to remember. Like one thing that really makes me cringe is when I hear a preacher say something along the lines of, you know, I was praying with God, praying to God rather, not with God, praying to God, and I received a new revelation from God yesterday, and he told me to share this new revelatory message that he shared with me to share to you. Um, God does not give new revelatory messages. He reveals what he has already spoken in his word. Even people that claim to be modern-day prophets, God does not prophesy anything new outside of Scripture. If anyone is a modern-day prophet, he will prophesy within the boundaries of what Scripture says, not in contradiction to Scripture, but aligned to Scripture. But we have to remember this. And this is why it's so imperative that we familiarize ourselves with Old Testament, New Testament. A lot of people, I, I like preaching from the New Testament compared to the Old Testament. Our Pastor Alvin likes the Old Testament. I love the New Testament. Um, but you have to recognize that both are equally important. You know, some people think, well, you know what? Old Testament was about wrathful, vengeful God. Jesus is, New Testament is all about Jesus. No, according to Jesus, Old Testament was all about Jesus. And Old Testament was the medium by which you can truly come to understand who the Messiah actually is. And that's what I wanted to conclude on. And this week, even though it's three short verses, it's a, sh a small passage, I encourage you guys to meditate prayerfully upon it this week. What, is, what does it mean when Jesus quotes 110? The fact that Yahweh says to Adonai, you sit at my right hand, you have equal status, equal authority, equal power to me. What should that actually mean for me? Because if he has equal authority to Yahweh, then he is the king of God's kingdom. And if I am to be a citizen of the kingdom, if I am to live in service of this kingdom, then I can't go about living a servant life without serving, can I? In what kind of a monarchy can the subjects of the king live within the kingdom under the king's authority without ever serving him. But it's something to think about. And one thing I encourage you, because this, this passage, um, I remember my, my New Testament lecturer said that you could probably preach uh, four months worth of sermons from these three verses. I probably can't do that. <laughs> and I won't, I won't put you through that. But there is a lot in these three verses, I'll have to admit. And I think these three verses is something worth praying over. Maybe even at Maru, 
on Saturday. Shameless plug. But Maru on Saturday, there's nothing more powerful than taking a passage like this, laying it before the throne of God and just asking him, can you reveal more of this passage? Can you reveal more of the identity of Jesus to me through this passage? And what's more, can you shape the way I should be living my life in light of this multidimensional understanding that the Messiah gives about himself through this passage? Let's pray. Father, The early church understood the importance of your word. And we find if we look throughout history uh, that your people have rekindled, then lost, then rekindled, rekindled then, then lost their understanding of the importance of your word. We saw it lost during the Middle Ages, then regained during the Reformation. We saw it lost and then regained during the revivals of the early 1900s. But Lord, as we prayerfully reflect, I cannot help but think that perhaps we're going through that cycle of, again of having lost our understanding of the importance of your word and the prominent place that it's meant to have in our life in shaping our understanding of you, our understanding of Christ, our understanding of how he commands us to worship him. And so for th so many of us, we've allowed other things to shape our understanding and define who Jesus is to us. And so Lord, we pray for a reformation, a return to scripture, a return to the gospel, where all of us daily would prayerfully open your word and ask you to reveal yourself through the words of scripture so that we can truly see the majesty and honor of the Messiah that sits at your right hand. So for any of us that are struggling with this, Lord, we repent. And we pray to be able to start again. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.